Well, hey, everybody. I hope you're having a fantastic day. Thank you so much for listening today. Today is part two of a very, very special set of episodes that we are rebranding. It was called Ask Me Anything, but it's now going to be called Ask Us Anything. My name is Adam Shaw. And I'm Stephanie Shaw. And this is The Restorationist. So, hey, Steph, how are you doing today? Great, thank you. Yes, we say we're doing well, but the reality is we just put Judy to bed. And we are hoping, desperately hoping, that uh, he doesn't come downstairs and interrupt the recording. We just got back from vacation. Wasn't that great? It was awesome. So why don't you tell everybody, where did we go? We went out, we flew to Calgary, Alberta, and then we drove three hours to Golden, BC. So we were in the middle of the Rockies. It was incredible. Remember when we saw the animals? (laughs) There's one particular. There's one particular that it will stick out in my memory forever. Why don't you, uh, I guess we got to set the stage. I think that people need to know that where we were staying, there were two, uh, it was a cougars? Yep, cougars. On the trail camps, Mm -hmm. as well as two grizzly bears. So all week long, we were on the lookout for bears. And apparently my brother saw one coming up to our place. He did. He did saw one and see one, saw one, see one. It's again, it's late. We just got our child to sleep. This has got to be released tomorrow. So we're going to make hiccups along the way. So we, we thought we saw there, didn't, didn't we? Why don't you tell people what happened? We're driving up the mountainous road to where we were staying. And I yelled out. There's a bear. There's a bear. Like people got to understand, like I'm the very excitable, emotional one. And, and you are the more kind of reserved, cool headed, like clear headed person. But you were like, I was passionate. Super excited. Yeah, no, yes. Super it was excited. like, there's a bear, there's a bear. And so your dad who is driving turns around does a three point turn on this tiny mountainous road. And we went back, we went back and what was there? Uh, a giant pot belly pig. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny. It was a giant, like the, now in your defense, it was the size of a small bear. If yeah. it was walking at all fours and had a snout. And Judah called it a warthog. So that really made my day. A warthog. Yes. And so, but we had a great time, didn't we? It was so nice. It was really fun. It yeah. was wonderful. Plug for Canada to all of the international listeners. Um, if you want to see raw and rugged beauty, you need to go to Alberta and British Columbia. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree, Steph? It's amazing. Yep. Unbelievable. We were at one point 8,800 meters above sea level in the kicking horse mountain range. And I fell, uh, and slid down. What's that? Was it feet? Um, 8,800 feet. Okay, uh, in a in a measurement of some sort, we were high above high above the clouds. <laughs> this is going off the rails already. Uh, we were above the clouds. We were above the clouds on a mountain, and it was incredible. It was absolutely amazing. Anyway, we're rambling about our vacation because uh, we had to get back to work last week and this week, and um, it's we're now in the stage of. Uh, of transition where you kind of have a hope for the future, but you also now are in deep regret because of something you've lost. And what we've lost was a great vacation. We can't be back in the mountains anymore. We got to get back to real life. So let's, let's jump in. So Steph, I'm going to turn the hosting chair of this podcast completely over to you. Take it away. So it's going to be the same as last time when we have some serious questions and also some that are on the light, more lighthearted side. So this first one is from Greg and he said, can we have a shout out to every Aussie listening to the podcast? Aussies. Yes. Yes. To all of my Australian listeners. I love Australia. 
Um, absolutely love Australia. I cannot wait to go back to Australia. One of my favorite espresso drinks with milk comes from Australia, the flat white. That is an Australian drink. Coffee trivia for all of you out there. Uh, it is absolutely incredible. So I'm going to forget some names, and hopefully I don't offend. I'm not going to offend the Australian people. They are fun and lighthearted. But, yes, I want to give a shout-out. Greg, number one. Greg, how's it going, bro? I miss you, man. Hope things are well with your family. So, Greg, American Greg, uh, Ben, the transporter, you know who you are. Sister Jenna, of course, Pastor Stanley Harvey, Sister Robin Harvey, Morty. Um, I love you guys all so much. Uh, I, I love Australia. Again, can't wait to go back. Please, in between one of your services, have an extra flat white for me, um, which is the greatest in-between service tradition that I've ever been a part of was we all go out in the foyer, eat snacks, and drink flat whites. Um, I loved Australia. Sydney was an incredible an amazing, amazing city, but most of all, the people. The Australian culture is incredible. It's very much like Canada, uh, except a more direct. Canadians are very passive-aggressive. Australians are very direct, and I loved that. So, um, yes, shout-out to all of the Australian listeners. Love you guys very much. So the next set of questions has to do with current events and how to lead the church through them. It's from Matt and Shauna. In your opinion... How do you feel that the current pandemic is positioning leaders in the church to prepare for God to be able to do his greatest work in the end times? Okay, so this is a really great question. Thanks, guys, so much uh, for this. Um, there's a lot to this question, and I, but I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best to answer it. Um, and, and, you know, Steph, jump in at any point if you have anything to say. So I'm going to preface all of my comments. So there's a really big caveat at the end of my answer here. So there are three large categories of things that I think that God is trying to do in us and for leaders in, in this particular time. Um, so number one, uh, I think God is filling us with an awareness that Jesus is actually coming back and that that return of Jesus is very, very soon. I, I think as I have, um, as I've perused the internet, I have never seen more messages about the coming of Jesus, about the last days and the fact that people need to get their hearts and lives ready to meet Jesus than the moment that we're in um, right, right now. And I think this is really, this is really, really good. Number one, the coming of the Lord is a focal point of scripture. It is a focal point of Scripture. It is the big event of Scripture. Jesus, he came once, he died, he was buried, he rose again on the third day, he was poured out by the Holy Spirit that now lives in our hearts, but he is coming back for his church, and that has been something I think, this is not, I'm not trying to knock or be negative, but it's, it is a message that I think has been lost out of the desire for hyper-pragmatism in, in the life of the church and the life of preaching, and so that is coming back, so that's a really great thing, and I think that's a really great thing, number one, because it's a big biblical concept, Number two, Jesus, because actually he's actually coming back. And then three, here's what Dr. Norris had to say in one of his books. I forget which book it was, but it was so powerful. And that was people who it may have been life, death, and the end of the world, which if you don't have it, you need to get it. And that is people who were convinced that the return of Jesus was imminent made the biggest impact on their world in its present time. So when people were convinced that Jesus could come back any day, they weren't as the, you know, the old dumb criticism is just pining away for a rescuer in the sky. No, the people that believe that Jesus was imminently about to return made the biggest difference in the world because they, because it mattered. And so God is using, um, God is using us to this, this, this thing to shake us, to, to remind us of what's really important and to help us serve and lead with eternity in view. So that's the first big category. The, the second big category of what he is trying to do to refine it, uh, to, to, to shape us or position us is to refine us. And there are two ways to look at the refining, the, the refining power of the moment that we're in and the refining that God is giving the church at this particular moment. Um, the first is the refining of our methodologies. You know, typically Pentecostal churches, they, they can be quite traditional, which it seems like an oxymoron because we celebrate not being traditional, but the fact of the matter is because we're so conservative, we tend to be 
traditional when it comes to our methods. And there's nothing like COVID or a total shutdown to make you take a hard look at what you do and how you do it. Mm -hmm. I think we were even talking about that today is that this really makes you take a hard look at is what we're doing really important. The things that we're doing, are they actually making, they actually making a difference. So I think what this is doing is it's helping us or it's pushing us into this, into this space where we're finding out which things are mission critical, which, which methods, which programs, which approaches are, are really critical to the life of a local church and, and which are manufacturing energy. And by manufacturing energy, I mean like the things that we're doing that everyone hates and no one likes to do and they're not making a difference but we do it because it's tradition. It's a program, it's a ministry, it's a service type that is that is tradition. And and so as a result because we're it's pushing us to refine our methods, this is an amazing time for us to make changes organizationally. I mean organizationally, I mean like the organization of the local church. We've we've been doing this in Hamilton, LifePoint, right? And um, where we've been making changes, and this is a great time if you are a leader that has the authority and the ability to, to make a change or to pitch a change, it's an amazing time to take advantage of it and then just blame it on the Rona. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, blame, blame it on coronavirus and be like, oh, yeah, no, we axed this because Rona is, is here and we, we can't do it no more. Um, and so I think it's the perfect opportunity, but, but I mean, all kidding aside, I think people are more open to change right now, change in our method. And I'm not talking about our message. And if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you know, that's, that's done. That's settled. The gospel is the gospel. The truth is the truth, right? You've got to be born again of the water and of the spirit. We've got to pursue holiness uh, I, you know, we've, we've got to try our very best with the help of the Holy Spirit. To be, I'm not talking about changing theological values. I'm not talking about changing core values. I'm talking about how we get stuff done. People are more open to change in church right now because this is a season that is extremely tumultuous. And so God has given us great opportunity to go, what actually makes a difference in the culture and in the world that we're in right now. What what programs, what methods, what processes are in our church that that really have the ability to win the people in our community and turn them into disciples of Jesus Christ. If there has been any changes that you've been thinking about making, now is the time is the time to to do that. Yeah, I think that one thing that has stuck out to me throughout this season is just a reminder of how little we're in control. Yeah. And so I think that um, we like to make plans and we like to, you know, plan for the future, but all that's been turned upside down this year. And so I think that that's something that God has done to, to us individually and also to the church just to help us really rely on him and take it day by day and, you know, realign our lives to the things that truly matter. Absolutely. And that leads me to like the second way I think God is refining us right now. So um, the second way that he is refining us is, is he's just refining us. Like mm-hmm. he's refining us, the church and he's, and he's making us ever more Jesus only, right? The message of our churches lately has been Jesus. I know it's been like this in my own church we're focusing on what really must be preached. The urgency of the moment is driving us to push people to say, hey, be focused on God. I'm seeing far more messages on consecration, 
pre far less preaching on that, you know, health and wealth and Jesus can make you happy and make life perfect and full of rainbows and unicorns and all things fluffy. And it's now the cost of discipleship. It's, it's the new birth. It's the hope of heaven. It's spiritual disciplines and it's calling people to more. It's, I think, so he's the second way that it's refining is he's refining us and, and this may not sound like a positioning, but it is because this crisis is refining the people in the church. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and this is going to sound negative, but I want you to, I want to, I want you to hear me out. If you're listening right now, how, how this is actually a positive God is refining the body right now when we're shut down and now we're back open in our church, but there, there are many places that have been, uh, there have been large spikes and then shutdowns and, um, uh, I'm not talking about those where there seems to be an inordinate amount or an unfair amount of state pressure, uh, to shut them down. That's a completely different issue. Um, but one of the things that I keep hearing is that God is refining the body and the confrontation is not everyone is going to make it through this season. And I'm not talking about physical health. I'm, t- I'm talking about spiritual health. Talking spiritually, not everyone in our youth groups, not everyone in our churches, uh, is going to make it in this season. Some, as as my dad has said lately across the pulpit, have been living off of the atmosphere of a worship service without a spiritual life of their own. It's like like osmosis; they just take in the powerful environment, and that is enough to eke them by. But they don't actually have a prayer life of their own, and the disruption of normal and isolation has led to a distancing from God. So, like we are distancing, or should be, from one another in a grocery store, their souls are distancing from God. And while we want everyone to be saved, and we're going to reach for all, and as leaders, and as pastors, and those serving in local churches, we're going to use all all methods possible to influence and redirect those wandering away from the faith. We've got to understand that God is refining the church right now, and not everyone is going to make it. We're going to do everyone everything we can, but there are going to be some that won't make it. They will lose faith, and God could be using this to refine the spiritual fence-sitters of our groups and of our churches, saying, are you in or are you out? It's time for you to decide who, who's, who, who's really going to serve the Lord. Choose, you know, the old you know, statement of Joshua, choose you this day whom you will serve. I feel that cry going out from God to his church. Who are we going to serve? Are we going to serve our culture? Or are we going to serve Jesus? Are we gonna, are we gonna, you know, shrivel up and die because we cannot do life the way and church and spirituality the way that we've always done it, or are we going to find ways to to make it happen regardless of external circumstances? And I, and the reason why I think God is doing this to refine the church to, you know, separate the sheep from the goats, so to so to say, is because there is great revival coming. There is tremendous revival that is coming. And when the truly hungry, lost people come, they need a church that is full of spiritually healthy, on-fire disciples. And it could be that God is simply, if there are people that are dropping off in the season despite your best efforts, it could be that God's refining your church. God's freeing up seats for those that are truly lost and really hungry for God and hungry for more so that they can come. So God's refining. And so I, I, I've been taking a lot of time, but I got one more, one more category and then the caveat. And that is, um, this is, a, God is positioning us by liberating us. I, I feel that the pressure of this season is making us more creative in our church, it's making us pivot faster. Like you said, Stephanie, at the beginning, we're realizing how, how little control we have, how much, you know, all of our plans and hopes and dreams really, like none of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. So we're genuinely relying on God. And as a result, the 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 timeline, and I've talked about this in previous episodes, the timeline between idea and execution is shorter. And we are much more open to being creative and experimenting in our methods. Uh, and I think that's just an incredible thing. 
So the caveat I want to throw. So we've got three categories that God is making us more aware he's coming back. So increasing urgency. Number two, refining us in our methods and refining the people. Three, liberating us to be creative and experiment. But the big caveat of it is this, is that in order for all of these things to be true for you, in order for God to position us or position you through this crisis, the whole world is in urgency, refinement, liberation. They'll only be true for you if you're willing to go through the pain. Yeah. There's pain in this. Mm -hmm. It's hard when everything is unfamiliar. There is a certain pain that comes with this. And you've got to be okay with being uncomfortable and you've got to be okay with the pain of change and the pain of being repositioned from a comfortable place in the North American church to position for revival. You've got, and if you resist and buck that change and try to hold on to what you can control and what is familiar, I'm again, I'm not talking about doctrine or theology. I'm talking about methods. I'm talking about way of life. I'm talking about lifestyle. If you try to hold on to that, you won't be repositioned. You, you will, you will, your ministry and leadership will shrivel up because you're bucking the pain of God reshaping your life and shaping your ministry through crisis. You got to be okay with being uncomfortable. You cannot retreat to what it's going to be like when everything is going to get back to normal. It's not going back to normal. Normal is over. We got to get that out of our head. We've got to say, God, you're doing something. We're going to submit to the pain of the process of, of, of you changing us, making us more urgently aware of your coming, refining us, refining our congregations and our methods, forcing us to be creative, forcing us to, to, to be less controlling, to respond to the moment. You've got to submit to that. So that was a really, that was a really long answer. But that, that's what I think that God is, is doing. And, and I'll stop talking now and, and give it back give it back to you. And one thing that I thought of when you were talking is the word, like, I just kept on thinking, everything you're saying is so hard. Like, all of those things, each one of the categories that you spoke about, it's challenging us. Yeah. And I'm not a person who adapts to change easy per se. Um, just as part of my personality, like mm -hmm. I, I, I want to question it and I want to make sure we're doing the right thing before we, you know, jump full with both feet in the water. Yeah. But, um, but now I've just this last little bit, I've been feeling an urgency, like, okay, we've got to, we've got to change. Like we, we accept that it's hard. We accept that we don't know the, all the answers, but we've got to do something. Yeah. And so now's the time for us to, to start taking action. Absolutely. And, and I remember we've been having conversations over the past few weeks of, of what God could be asking us to do and becoming more involved with people. And um, not that we weren't before, but just being more, just the urgency of, of being intentional with our life and our time and, and taking responsibility, not waiting, but taking responsibility for what is in front of us right now and what God is calling us to do right now. Mm -hmm. And just doing that with all of our heart and letting the future and all of those other things take care of itself. Yeah. All right, next, let's go to the next one. The next question was from Joel, and he said, do you ever drink Tim Hortons? And if so, do you shudder or go into convulsions with each sip? <laughs> uh, Tim Hortons is not that bad unless you go to, like, some of the nasty Tim Hortons in our city where they don't clean their coffee machines, and then it's, it's awful. It, like, hurts your teeth. And um, if there's nothing else... I will, I will drink Tim Hortons, but I know I'm going to be, I, I, I've come to grips now with the fact that it's never going to be okay. And I will always be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> I know it makes me sound like a diva, but, but remember when we went through the drive through the other day and I asked for, you have to have a little bit of cream in Tim's coffee. Otherwise um, it hurts your gums because it's so acidic. Uh, and I asked for, remember, I asked for just a little bit of cream and no sugar. What did I get? Your iced coffee. Yep. I got all of the sugar that they had 
and double cream, double cream, like just double cream. And I just, I didn't take it back. I just accepted it for what it was. <laughs> it is, it is like they cannot see outside of their own paradigm. So you no, know, I don't shudder when I sip Tim Hortons. I have come to grips with the fact that they will always disappoint me. And so I drink it nonetheless. All right. Next question. This is from the bane of your existence. <laughs> And they want to know, what food is delicious but a pain to eat? Okay, that one is easy for me. That is crawfish. And I know I have just enraged the South by calling it <laughs> difficult to eat. But let's imagine a crawfish boil here. And again, it's, and Stephanie is shuddering. If you could see her right now. And it's because I've ruined it. I was in Louisiana. I was hanging out with some friends. And, um, and, and I sent her videos of me in a bib, which, I mean... I was in a bib and there was just this bucket in front of me and these freshly boiled crawfish. I was ripping off their heads, sucking the juice out of the head. And I have no idea why God called these foods unclean in the old Testament. And they're delicious. Um, <laughs> ripping out the mud vein, which is crawfish poop and, and then eating the, eating the meat and it was extra spicy. So, so my lips got all red and everything. It's delicious. It's one of my favorite things to eat, but let's be honest, people from the South, it is not, it is not simple to eat crawfish. It is, it is absolutely going to make you messy. Um, it is difficult for me to eat for two reasons. Number one, I have to get to the South and that's difficult especially in Rona season. I got to get to Louisiana in crawfish season. And then it's the process of basically ripping apart this sea dwelling cockroach meat and eating it. But it's absolutely incredible. I, I love it with all of my heart. And so somebody please invite me to Louisiana so I can come see you and we can eat mud bugs together. <laughs> okay. This comes from Billy and he said, if there was only one thing that you could do to reach the lost, what would it be and why? I would preach. It was, when I sat down to answer this question, it was, it was a very, very simple to me. And, and thank you, Billy, for the, for the question. Um, it, it is, it is, uh, is I would preach. I would, and, and I would, I would define preaching as yes on service and services from behind a pulpit. And I would also include groups small groups, my, our discipleship groups that we do in our church. I would consider that preaching when I'm sharing the gospel with people that are lost, that don't have an experience with the Bible, that don't know anything about Jesus. Um, I would consider getting in a room and, and whether I'm sitting at a table or standing in a living room, uh, or behind a stage, if I'm telling people about Jesus and I'm opening up the Bible and compelling them to be saved or to follow him or to be more dedicated, that is that is preaching to me. That is preaching. So the reason why is because that is what God has called and gifted me to do. And I'm not saying I'm the best preacher in the world, but I am saying that is what I have been gifted and that's what I have been called to do. Now, if that's not your gift or that's not your calling, you're to do something else, then that needs to be the one thing that you need to try to do at all costs to reach and to win the lost. I'm saying preaching because that's what God has called me to do. And I embrace, I embrace that. I, I take the Bible and I apply it to a need or to issues. And um, I want to show people Jesus. Some, sometimes one of the things that we do, I think, to our perils, we denigrate or discount the power of, of preaching. And we talk about other ways of serving in ministry, other ways of serving in the church. And I understand that. We don't want to elevate or make people think that the pulpit is all that there is to ministry and to reaching people. And I'm in full support of that. But preaching is the avenue that God has chosen to show the loss that there is hope for their life and that there is good news that Jesus has come and he's died. He's buried. He's resurrected. And now he's alive through the outpouring of the Holy spirit, which we can receive in the most powerful spiritual experience that a human being can, can ever get. And so that's the method God has chosen. And that is the gift that God has given me. So that's what I would do. Hope that answers your question, Billy. And also Billy, thank you very much uh, for catching me when I passed out after preaching at an event. I've talked about you before, Billy. I want to give you another shout out again. Thank you that when I got really bad food poisoning, I uh, was coming off a stage after preaching an event. You caught me uh, in your arms like a giant baby 
Uh, I was the giant baby, not you. And uh, you caught me as I passed out. So thank you very much once again for helping me not to fall and also for asking that really awesome question. Thanks, Billy. <laughs> Sorry. That's really funny stuff. Okay, this one comes from Morty. And uh, they want to know, how does a church leader deal with parasocial relationships? Church, online only, etc. This is an awesome Question, Morty, and um, again, shout out to Australia. Love it. Um, except for the spiders and the snakes. They terrify me to no end. So I looked up what parasocial relationships uh, were. Um, thank you, Morty, for asking me a difficult question that stretched my brain a little bit. And parasocial relationships, uh, at least according to what I could find, is it's the relationship that people develop with someone they watch or they listen to. And so... It's usually a one-sided relationship because the personality on the screen or behind the microphone doesn't know the person watching as much as the audience knows them. So basically it's in a very general sense, someone is on social media, someone is on television or someone is online and they are communicating, entertaining, performing, and there is an audience there that through the whatever medium that, that their message, the performer or the entertainer, the speaker's message is coming there, they develop a, a friendship or a kinship, some sort of social relationship with that individual while the person who is doing the said performance or entertaining or speaking doesn't have that same knowledge or understanding of the audience, may not know them, at all. And so, Morty, this is a great question because um, while it's nothing new, because since the advent of television, people have become enamored or developed a sense of connection with public figures, and that's exploded within social media. But for pastors, COVID-19 has introduced a brand new world for so many leaders, so many speakers and pastors that it's a new world for so many of us, like preaching and influencing people we cannot see. And um, and it feels at times kind of weird you know, because when, when church was shut down, we were preaching to a camera and we may have seen if we were doing the, the camera was our phone, we, we could see, you know, the comments that were coming, coming up. But for many churches, they were, they were preaching or teaching or doing things online to a congregation that they could not see and could not, understand the response unless they receive some sort of spiritual discernment from from God and also just more in general because more and more of us are leveraging the powers of social media and other technology we're more likely to experience this phenomenon of parasocial relationships where the audience knows us more than we know the audience than kind of ever before and you know, I, as I was thinking through this and it's, you know, perils and pitfalls and, and all that kind of stuff, I, I thought this can be good. There are some good things to this. It can be good. Um, it's good because we get to know someone beyond the pulpit. So when we're on social media, um, we get to, you know, our people, the people that follow us, that are part of our congregation, just thinking strictly locally or in our communities, get to know us beyond whatever official role or function that they get to see us in within inside the four walls of a church building. And, and I believe that people in, 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 in church and people in the world in general are really desperate for someone to serve as an example, to follow what, you know, how, how does, how does this leader live their life? How do they interact with their family? What's, you know, what's, just general, even just basic things about, you know, pictures of their family or what they're doing with their time. These things, they crack open a window to give people insight as to how you are personally applying to the principles and the values that you are proclaiming as a spiritual leader within the life of a local church. And I think that's a really good thing. I think it's a really good thing that, that you know, you get to see the inner workings of, of someone's day-to-day -day life because it, it shows you how the values that we say we are to uphold, how they can be incarnated in 
the real world outside of a Sunday service. And I think what we've got to do as leaders, understanding we do have that platform and that example that we can set, is we've got to just embrace that people will always know you more than you know them. And that's okay. That's actually great. That's fine. Doesn't mean you're a celebrity or anything crazy or weird like that, but just as a result of your platform and the position that you have been given in leadership in the lives of people, people will feel like they know you way more than you may know them. And this can be a really great thing if you follow a few principles. I wanna share with you a few of those principles for how to govern and manage parasocial relationships. So, so here's a few of these principles that I think that if we use them, this concept of parasocial relationships can be a positive thing. Number one, be human. Be a real person. Authenticity is amazing. And so be human. Be human. Don't be an influencer. I, I'm, I find influencer culture super cringy. I'm going to be honest with you. And, and maybe this makes me the old, grumpy, angry man in the corner. But I find, like, influencer culture cringy because it's, it's, it's fake. And generally, it's, it's self-interested. Like the person who wants to add you to sell you something. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, I'm not, like, that's, no, that's not what we do. You know, that's, that's not the platform God has given us. It's not the purpose of the platform that God has given us. So I find influencer culture very, very difficult to understand. And, and I, don't, I don't necessarily think that that's healthy for the body of Christ. Don't try. So when I say be human, don't try and make everything so staged. Just be real. Be human. And I think, and again, this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on top of a soapbox right now. And if you disagree with me, that this is totally cool. Um, make sure your feed is about your real human life. And it's not just filled with very well manicured and sculpted pictures of yourself. Like that's that I find that to be kind of strange. Um, you know, when your, your social media activity is entirely about um, taking pictures of yourself and you're not, an adolescent, uh, you're not a young person, but you know you are an established. If someone is an established leader, in you know their their twenties and thirties and forties, uh, you know, open up your life. Yeah. So you know, if you take a look at my social media, it's usually you know places, podcast stuff, church stuff, things I'm reading, places I've gone, occasional pictures of coffee, maybe a lot of pictures of coffee, but you're not going to find a lot of you know, edited pictures of me preaching with inspirational quotes that I've said underneath them. Um, that's, we see that a lot in the, in the, you know, the megachurch space. I don't think that serves people well. I think there is a certain stagedness to it. And so I think if you're going to embrace the influence or platform that God can give you through parasocial relationships, through people seeing you on a screen or through their phone, you have to be human. You have to be human. Craig Groeschel says this, and I think it's a wise quote. People would rather follow a leader who is real than one who is always right. They're craving for authenticity. So be, be human, be real. Try to make an impact. Don't try to be famous. So the goal of, of parasocial platforms is for impact, not for infamy. So you're not trying to, to make a name for yourself you're trying to point people ultimately to Jesus and the world of his kingdom and the values and principles of his kingdom. That's what you're trying to do ultimately with your life. You're trying to incarnate in all that you do in all platforms where people can find you and where people can see you. You're trying to impact and influence them towards Jesus, not for yourself or for your own fame. And I guess thirdly, I would say use 
your influence wisely and ethically. If I was going to give you a third principle to govern these types of relationships, it's use this influence, this relationship that people develop with you through whatever medium you are communicating with them or, or to them. Use that ethically and use it wisely. Tonight I was reading Proverbs 26 with Judah before he went to bed. And verse 7 just, it, it stuck out to me so much that I actually had to stop when I was reading it. And I just thought about it for a second. It says, a wise saying spoken by a fool does no good. And and in my mind, I, I knew what you were going to, some of the things you were going to be talking about on the yeah. podcast. And it, it just stood out to me so much because... You know, no matter what kind of content we post online, you know, whether it's a saying, an inspirational quote, or a scripture, it says that it's spoken by a fool does no good. So if our life doesn't reflect what we're posting online, then we're preaching something different than we're actually living. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I completely agree. And that is, that's where the authenticity and that humility comes in. And, and we've got to make sure that we're not trying to create a brand through whatever content we create, but we're actively just from the overflow of what God is doing in our own life, just presenting that to the world in whatever way that he has asked us or, or called us to do. So in, when it comes to using it wisely and ethically, I, some of the things I thought about is, is think about what your posts, the rest of your posts are saying, about the about your message and about your values. So we can talk about how Jesus loves everyone all day, but if we're posting the most divisive political content at the same time, we're mixing those messages to an unbelieving world. Well, absolutely, and I think it's a sad thing. Um, we want to point people to Jesus. We want to point them. We want to point them to the gospel. That we want to. They. We want them to experience His love and His and His power through whatever we do online. That needs to radiate through. Uh, also, when it comes to ethically and wisely, try to avoid areas covered by another pastor. If you have a platform that influences people outside of your local assembly, make sure that what you're saying and doing is not it's not going to be one of those issues that is going to potentially contradict or go against what, you know, another pastor may be trying to communicate and maybe trying to say there is diversity in the body and in the apostolic church on certain things. And we need to be very, very cautious that we are not straying into spaces and into areas. It's one of the things that I'm trying to, you know, do within this own, within my podcast here. And I, I hope I get it right all the time. And if I don't, I hope someone calls me on it that, that I don't want to stray with the content that I create that goes all the way around the world. I don't want to stray into things that would be, you know, discipleship and membership things governed by another pastor or another shepherd within a local church. That would be me not using my influence ethically or wisely. And so, and then the last thing I would say, Morty, is that the most powerful influence that you can ever have is local. At the end of the day, just settle that. The greatest difference you're going to ever make in someone's life will never happen through a screen, but will happen across the table. It's going to happen when you have people over your house. You go to go to their house, go out for coffee with them. It's going to be the small circle of real flesh and blood human interactions that you have with others closest to you. So we can make an impact through other means, but know that the greatest impact that we're ever going to make, it's going to be personal. And that's it. This is a question from Faber. And they asked, do you play any instruments? Um, no, I don't. Uh, not at all. I lead worship at my church. I sing. Now, if all of the other drummers in our church get sick with leprosy or struck down by God or get hit with a plague or something, I can, if there's no other human that can carry an in-the-pocket beat um, slightly, I can get in the drum cage and uh, poorly play drums. I can stay in the pocket, usually keep okay timing, um, but that's about it. Nothing fancy is going to happen. Nothing impressive is going to happen. So I don't play any instru instruments at all. I should have practiced piano when I was a kid. I regret that now. Um, but uh, but no, no favor. I do not play any instruments besides I sing a little bit. 
The next question is from the bane of your existence. What old person things do you do? <laughs> okay, now, Steph, this is where I'm going to need your help. Uh, what what old person things do I do? Well, you definitely have some dad jeans. I do. I love my dad jeans. And some really comfy shoes. Runners, I should say. Yes, sneakers. Sneakers, yeah. Uh, I have some Reebok Club C's with paint all over them. Um, they're triple E cause I have, uh, square feet uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I love those shoes. I, they, they go all over the world with me. Um, I love them and my dad jeans that have, uh, that have stretch, they're stretchy. <laughs> they're, they're, they're loose fit, but they have extra stretch just in case I need to be comfortable. Cause I am a dad. They are dad jeans. They are light wash. Like they are, they are old person jeans. Absolutely. And they're my favorite. What other old person things? What I was trying to think, what other old person things I do, do I do? Your pens. Is that an old person thing? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So I do not do digital stuff when it comes to writing, making notes. And I'll talk about this more in the sermon question that we, we get to eventually. But I, I, uh, no, I do. I like real pens, like fountain pens that I fill up with little bottles of ink and I'm very particular about paper, um, that I write on. And Definitely an old person thing. That, yes. No, like people are like, you should, you should get this new iPad with the Apple pencil. And I'm like, I, no, I don't want to do that. I have paper and I have fountain pens and I have many colors of ink and that's what I want to do. That's all. Oh, my dad caps. I love a good dad cap. I rock the Jays one that I have, the Toronto Blue Jays. That's an old person thing. Our, I think I think we've exhausted the old person things I do. Is, is that it? I think so. That's all I can think That's of. That's all I can think of? Yeah. Okay. So jeans, shoes, hats, and pens. Okay, here we go. What's next? The next question, um, Joel wants to know, what do you struggle with? What questions do you face that you don't have answers for? And what are you doing about that? That's a really good question, Joel. I really appreciate that. Um, I would say right now, um, the question that I'm kind of grappling with or wanting to want to study is the question of the historical Adam and Eve unraveling the, you know, the first few chapters of Genesis and, and interpreting them correctly. And this goes beyond creation versus evolution. I want to just, I want to affirm like right now that God created the world and he created people and uh, the scripture is true. I, I do not believe in naturalism as a worldview. I, I think it's wrong. So don't want anyone to think that. But when I, the, the more I've kind of delved into it, it goes beyond whether you believe the earth is 6,000 years old or the universe is billions of years old. Um, it's really kind of unraveling the story of the historical Adam and Eve and how to interpret Genesis one, two, and three. Um, nothing that would radically impact theology, but I think that it definitely would help my evangelism. And so I've been reading a lot. I've been listening to podcasts, especially uh, everything from Ken Ham, not Kent Hovind. If you use Kent Hovind for your creation, you know, research, you need to find a new young earth creationist. Um, he's not, he's, he's not fantastic. Uh, his claims are pretty spurious. Um, but so Ken Ham is good. I would use him answers in Genesis. I'm looking at them and then I'm going all the way to Bill Craig and Joshua Swamidas. Uh, Bill William Lane Craig is obviously a pretty conservative philosopher and theologian, but he has some very different ideas on the historical Adam and Eve. Not sure where I land with him on whether or not I agree with him. I don't think I do on a lot of the stuff that he, he presents, but I'm trying to look at the text, trying to look at history. There's been recent work in genetics that has been really, really, really fascinating. Um, that, you know, they used to say that, that there's no way that the human population could have come from a small set of individuals, let alone two recent genetic research is saying, no, absolutely. It makes perfect sense that there's, a two common ancestors. There is an actual historical Adam and Eve that's out there. And so the Bible was, you know, right all along and it's more recent than what we think. So it's not millions and millions and millions of years, but in human, you know, human 
you know, a population beginning with two individuals, two unique individuals. Um, that is, there. there's great scientific biological evidence for that. So I want to unravel that. That's kind of one of the things I believe God is creator. I believe in the word of God and, and I can articulate varying positions um, that are out there on the issue, but I have yet to really establish a strong position for myself as well as, you know, deepening my understanding in a way that would make me better defend the Bible and creationism to an unbelieving world. And so that's my big question that I've been kind of ruminating on. I've also been looking at the resurrection of Jesus and shoring up my defense of that, which obviously I do believe that he rose from the dead, but I want to be able to make that great case to a secular world. And so those would be the, you know, the couple of things that I'm looking at. This one uh, came from Malachi and he said, when preaching, how do you balance preparation, detailed notes and letting his spirit flow? So that's an excellent question. Um, I'm, I'm really glad to be answering that. I think that's awesome. So here's one of the governing principles that, that I believe. If the Holy Ghost can speak to you in a moment, he can speak to you a few days ahead of time. So if God can move so strongly and so powerfully and so deeply that he can tell you in the moment what he needs you to say, he also can give you a few days heads up. If we search and we pray. And so um, my approach is uh, I want to, I'm going to pray. I'm going to read the Bible. I always preach from the overflow of what God is speaking to me devotionally. Um, I've just found it's incredibly miserable to not pray or read the Bible and then be screaming at the ceiling, God, give me a word on a Saturday night. Um, it's better to stay in the flow of of what, you know, God is trying to speak to you and speak to your congregation and then, or whoever you're going to speak to, and then from the overflow of whatever he's saying, that that message arrives. But but here's the process. So I believe that if God can speak to me in the moment, which he does, and I embrace that reality, God can also speak to me if I do the work ahead of time. So deeply study. I think that's really, really important. So balancing that flow and the delivery, if I'm really going to be able to flow and not be bound to notes, I really need to know my material. That's it's, it's not about studying less. It's about studying more. It's about studying and studying and studying and studying. And, you know, Victor Jackson, if you listen to the preaching interview I did with him, he talks about how he reads the text. And he said, I read it and I read it and I read it and I read it. And I do the same. So I read the text that's speaking that I'm going to preach from. I'm, I'm, that's speaking to my heart. I read the context the surrounding verses. I get the chapter, figure out the message of the book. I look into the background information. I do a language study on the key words I want to bring out. I look into the history, you know, the narrative. Every text has a story. All of the Bible is narrative and story. And so I want to get that narrative. And then I always do a commentary run at the end. And all of this informs my application. Now, so what I do, Malachi, to balance preparation and detailed notes and being able to flow in the moment is I, is I study, 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 and I obsess. Like, Steph, you can attest to this. If I'm going to preach about something and that I'm, and I'm really into it, I'm really feeling it, it's, it's obsessive. It's, it's all we talk about. It's all we talk about. And so you hear the message at least... Six, eight times. Six, eight times. Um, <laughs> or 68. <laughs> 68 times. Um, and so what I do is I take all this stuff in, and uh, I'm going to get really technical and give you, like, because people like the nerdy details sometimes. So I have a Rhodia notepad that uh, is uh, it's a dot grid pad that I'm able to, uh, to just rip pages out. And so I'll write brainstorming on one and I'll just write all my ideas down and then I'll write down the text and I'll write down all of the data about the text. I'll write down, uh, rip out another sheet and do all of the applications. So I just have all of these little siloed pieces of paper. I write them all down and then I put them in my, uh, in my a five notebook because I'm old school and I like to write everything by hand. And so I write, I write it all down in my old man fountain pens that my wife says makes me an old person. <laughs> and I have all these, I have like five of them. Um, and, uh, I, I write my hand, write my notes, uh, to do that. And, and the reason why I write everything by hand is it's, it's the balance that detail and letting it flow. Cause when you write by hand, your memory is increased. You can remember more stuff. When you type things out, 
you have to refer to that iPad or those printed notes much more than an actual physical piece of paper that you've that you've written on. So it's it's an intentional decision. It's not just that I'm old, Steph. Um, <laughs> not just teasing. Uh, it's that that I I it helps me remember. So I have more point form notes, and that allows me to connect with the audience more and flow because the the content is ingrained within my memory. But when it comes to preparation and letting the spirit flow, I think the thing that will have the less prep and the less detail to it is that final call, that final push to the altar, that final conclusion. What I'm really trying to do there is to be open to the prophetic, that as I'm winding this message down in the moment. God will give me the words to say to call those people to respond. And so that's kind of my process. I know that was a lot of information. Uh, if you have any more questions, Malachi, send me a message. Be, be glad to help. This is our last question for today. And it was from Irel. And he said, how do you personally prepare for your preaching engagements? Is there a general methodology or duration for your preparation, both in notes and in seeking direction from God, or is it case by case? Um, you know, I think so. I I I reached out to Irel. We had a conversation about this question. It, it was the difference between preaching engagements and, you know, let's say local church kind of thing. I would honestly say, not really, not really at all. And and I and Steph, you're very much aware of my process because I share everything. Um, and I, I think you can attest, uh, attest to this, that, uh, I am just as intense about preaching at home as I am to preach, uh, you know, youth convention in my district. Cause as the youth president, I preach youth convention. And so I, and this is a principal thing for me. I don't want to treat a special event with a large crowd as being more important than a small crowd of people that I know. Maybe it's just me. It's not that I don't take the the big event seriously. It's that I think anytime we go to speak, we got to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. I get nervous every time I speak. It doesn't matter where. It doesn't matter. I get nervous before every podcast. I get nervous before every Bible study. And it's just because it's a really big deal to me. Like this is any time that you stand in front of somebody and you say, this is what God says to you right now. Whoa, that's a monster of a responsibility. And so I would say that in general, my prep and the time invested is the same, you know, from, it's the same, whether it's in a preaching engagement or my local church. Now, there may be a little more razzle-dazzle, what I call like stories or illustrations. That's an old person word. That is, that is an old person. Razzle is an old person word, yeah. Uh, so another thing that I do, main of my existence, that makes me an old person is I use old person words like razzle-dazzle. And then I would say I probably, for certain engagements, I preach a bit longer. Um, than I would at home. So at home, uh, I probably preach, you know, in the 20 to 30 minute range. And then usually conferences and other uh, conventions and other style events, there is an expectation that you're going to spend a bit longer time. So 35 to 40 minutes and which, you know, 10 minutes is a long, is a long bit of extra time to be in front of a group. So I would, I would say that would be the only difference is probably a bit more um, razzle dazzle, like illustrations and stories. And uh, I may preach a few minutes longer. Oftentimes what I will do for preaching engagements and, um, I hope this doesn't offend anyone, but I will often rewrite or begin the message with some pre-existing material that I have already done within, usually within my local church. Cause I think one of the, you know, one of the things that God does is he speaks to uh, he uses me to speak to my local church. And so that's often the seedbed of ideas that I get. Now, 
you know, if that offends you, I want to give you this quote from T.F. Tenney. If it was when you hear somebody preaching a message a second time or parts of a message a second time or a third time, here's what T.F. Tenney said. If it was not, if it's not good enough to preach twice, it was not good enough to preach once. And I was like, boom, there we go. And so if it's not good enough to preach twice, it was not good enough to preach once. And so what I often do for certain engagements, if I get a direction or a leading from God towards a specific topic, I will take some pre-existing material. It could be the exegesis of the scripture. It could be a story or an illustration. And um, I will use that to create a new document or you know a fresh take on, on a thought. But other than that, I prepare exactly the same way for really kind of every message. It's all important to me, and I want to put my best effort into everything that I do when, when, I, when I speak. I think the church is worthy of it, the message is worthy, and, and, and certainly God is too important for me to phone anything in because it is smaller than other things. So that's my thought. Well, I guess we're out of questions and we're out of time. And so wasn't this fun? Did you enjoy it again? I feel like we had a lot of fun on this. Uh, And so without uh, any uh, further ado, we will say goodbye to everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If this was a blessing to you at all, please uh, subscribe to the podcast uh, or leave a review or leave a rating. If, if you don't want to type a message out, you can just leave a star rating on your favorite podcast app. And that that really helps. It it helps push the podcast out there to, to new listeners. Uh, or you can just hit the share button on your podcast app and just share this episode with somebody that you feel would be, you know, that would benefit from, from these questions. Well, thank you for listening to Ask Us Anything. My name is Adam Shaw. And I'm Stephanie Shaw. And this is The Restorationist. You all have yourself a wonderful, wonderful day, and God bless.